Hello, and welcome to Asbury Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Devinney. I'm the lead pastor at Asbury, and I hope this podcast enriches your walk with Christ. I hope it increases your knowledge of the Bible, and I hope it also is at least entertaining enough to keep you coming back for more. Uh, this week, I'm going to kind of do two things. Because I do want to sort of build off uh, the just 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 bring to a, I guess bring to an end our, our discussion of the Global Methodist Church Catechism, which we covered somewhat on Sunday morning in my sermon. But I, and I also want to sort of um, begin a discussion of the season of Lent because um, Lent is beginning this week. I'm recording this on Tuesday the 13th, so for me, tomorrow is Ash Wednesday. Most of you will listen to this on Thursday, which means you'll have already uh, uh, you'll have already celebrated Ash Wednesday, but we'll, we'll still kind of give you a, br- a brief discussion at the beginning. But first, let's talk about the very, sort of the last, the last thing I wanted to, to preach on uh, in our Methodist distinctives, our Wesleyan distinctives, which are in the Global Methodist Catechism, um, and and that is the idea of entire sanctification, of being made perfect in love. Now, the reason I want to talk about this some more is because there is a lot of confusion on this in Methodist circles, and I even uh, heard a, a fellow Global Methodist Church pastor saying the other day, well, yes, you know, we're supposed to be going on to perfection, but we do not expect to reach it in this lifetime. Um, and uh, the problem is, that's flat out not what Wesley taught, and that's not what the experience of the early Methodists were. Um, right? We ask our ordinands, by the way, when they are ordained, we ask them, are you going on to perfection? And they're supposed to say yes. And then we ask them, do you expect to be made perfect in this lifetime? And the correct answer to that question that they are supposed to give is either yes or with God's grace I do. Um, something along those lines. But but this is actually, we, we, we teach or we're supposed to teach. And Wesley certainly taught that this is something that the Holy Spirit wants to do in us in our lifetime here on this earth. And what confuses, what makes this such a confusing doctrine in general is is just this idea of um, perfection and, and also the understanding that we're all sinners and we're all flawed and, and how that all goes together, right? And And that's fair. That's a very confusing topic. If you want a really in-depth discussion of this, by the way, um, there is a book uh, by Dr. Kevin Watson titled Perfect Love, and, and it is all about this subject. It's a, it's a short little read. You can buy it on Seedbed, but it's Perfect Love by Dr. Kevin Watson, and I would highly recommend it uh, as a very good discussion. It, it clarifies, especially for me, it clarifies a whole lot of things uh, about what this sort of means. And you can also find um, you know, John Wesley's sermon, a plain account of Christian perfection, where he himself lays out this this doctrine in his own words. Kevin Watson's book d- talks about Wesley's teaching of Christian perfection, but he also d- spends a lot of time talking about 
the actual experiences of the early Methodists when it comes to entire sanctification. And so um, that's an important way to look at it also because they certainly believed it happened for him. Um, so you can do uh, Perfect Love by Kevin Watson, a plain, John Wesley's sermon, A Plain Account of Christian Perfection. And you can also maybe check out, um, if you want to get really like nerdy Methodist, uh, Thomas Oden has a, a four-volume set called John Wesley's Teachings. And, and there is some discussion of entire sanctification in there, but there's also lots of really good uh, coverage of as the title says, all of his teachings about every area of our life and the life of the church and the role of the pastor and, and all this really good stuff. Uh, and it's and it's written for lay people. Uh, it's written for lay people to be able to read and understand what's going on. So that's a really good resource also. So you've got Perfect Love by Kevin Watson, John Wesley's Teachings by Thomas Oden, and A Plain Account of Christian Perfection, which is a sermon by John Wesley. All good resources here. Um, I want to emphasize when we talk about perfection. You know, we we John Wesley used the term Christian perfection, and he also used the term entire sanctification, right? Being made entirely holy. And the way that he understood this is not that we are perfect in the sense that God is perfect, right? In other words. It's not, it's not a, the way I describe it is it's not a static perfection. It's not that you have achieved this thing where you are now perfect and there is no room to grow and there is no room to improve. Rather, it's, um, it's a moving target, this kind of perfection. It's a moving target where um, you are each day the most excellent Christian you have ever been. And that means that there's always room for improvement because we're human. He also did not mean by entire sanctification that we are entirely free from human faults and failings. Um, you'll still make mistakes, right? You will still, um, you will still make choices that, due to a lack of knowledge, a lack of information, turn out to be bad decisions. Um, you may still offend someone by accident. You may still sin by accident without recognizing it. So when he talks about entire sanctification, what he's really talking about, as I understand it, is um, a, a freedom from impure or evil thoughts, a freedom from sinful desires, and the grace to perfectly resist temptation. And so, in other words, what he says is that the person who is entirely sanctified, their thoughts are holy. Um, they, they don't have unholy thoughts anymore, right? They don't, um, right? So, so that means that they, when they, they aren't, they aren't having anything in their inner life that would be sinful, right? Remember Jesus in the gospels will say, he'll take the laws of the old Testament and intensify them, right? He'll say, look, I, you know, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I tell you to look upon a woman with lust in your heart is to commit adultery, right? Uh, You've heard it said, thou shalt not kill, but I tell you, if you hate your brother or sister, you have committed murder. Uh, and this is the kind of thing Wesley's talking about, right? He says, the person who's entirely sanctified isn't looking at other women with lust in his heart. The person who's entirely sanctified is not hating anyone in his, in his heart and mind. 
He isn't thinking evil thoughts about a person. He isn't thinking insulting thoughts about a person. He isn't thinking, you know, all, all his thoughts are centered on Christ. And, and they're being filtered through the lens of Christ. And so, the person who is entirely sanctified has no desire to sin. None whatsoever. And I think it's maybe hard for us to understand what that is really like. Most of us have a desire to sin, let's be honest, right? We may not have, we may not have a desire to do things that are that we all recognize are just, you know, clearly evil. Um, but we all have some desires to do things that probably we shouldn't, right? We, we have a desire to judge people, for instance. Um, we have a desire to frivolously spend money on ourselves rather than using it to feed the hungry. We have a desire, uh, we have desires really to satisfy our earthly appetites for, for food, for luxuries, for comfort. You start to see, by the way, how, how drastic this idea of entire sanctification is. Um, we have, we all, we have desires that are unbidden, right, which, which lead us to be angry with people or to have a temper. And those are all rooted, really, in selfishness and pride. And so the person who is entirely sanctified doesn't have those things. The person who is entirely sanctified is uh, is not going to... Um, is not going to have a temper problem. The person who is entirely sanctified is not going to snap at people when they're upset. The person who is entirely sanctified is going to be largely in control of their emotions. And the person who is entirely sanctified is going to have the grace of God to perfectly resist temptation. Because temptation will still come. It will still rear its head. And this, it really is a lot. And I can't really, I'll be honest with you, even I, as a Methodist pastor, struggle sometimes to wrap my head around this concept of what it means to be entirely sanctified. But um, but again, Wesley was insistent. He was insistent that this teaching of entire sanctification, this was the reason God raised up the Methodist movement. Nothing else. It was only this. He insisted that the Holy Spirit wants to do this in each one of us. He insisted that the Holy Spirit can do this in us during our lifetime. And he insisted that while, yes, for some people it could be a lifelong process, and he himself, by the way, never claimed to be entirely sanctified, he also insisted that for some people it could be done in, to use his words, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. That you could be transformed by the Holy Spirit to be entirely sanctified. And early Methodist history is full of stories, especially in the in the early Methodists in the US. The, the, it's full of stories of men and women who claimed entire sanctification in a moment that they prayed for it and it happened, it fell upon them. Now this is me reading between the lines, so don't put too much stock in this. I, I do. It does seem to me that most of the time, 
when a person claimed to experience that. Um, it, it was a person who had had a conversion experience as well, right? So not, not necessarily someone who, um, you know, like me, raised in the church, never really wandered from the faith, um, has had, you know, hasn't had a, 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 a sort of moment where they've abandoned a, a, a life of deep sin to come to Jesus, right? doesn't mean I'm not a sinner. It just means that, you know, I, I've not had that experience of a, of a massive conversion experience like that. It does seem like most of the people who experienced entire sanctification in a moment, just in an instant, or also people who had those sorts of conversion experiences, and that people like myself, um, and also, I mean, people like John Wesley, who were, again, raised in the church. Now, he had his heartwarming moment where his faith took a turn. We all have those moments. Uh, but he was also raised in the church, right? I mean, it, and, and his convictions were always very deep about what it meant to be a Christian. And so, um, well, he never, I mean... He never claimed to have that experience of entire sanctification. It does seem like the, like for many of us who have been in the church for our whole lives, there's this process we have to go through. And at the end of the day, really what this is about is this is, a, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. We ought to be praying for entire sanctification every day for ourselves and for our families and for our friends. We ought to pray for that. Uh, but we also ought to expect that the Holy Spirit is going to work in each one of us as he sees fit. And, you know, for some of us, it may just be that God intends to take his time entirely sanctifying us because there are lessons we need to learn in the process. One of the things that I've been struck by uh, in recent months, I'm, I'm reading this book called The Beginning of Wisdom, and it's about Genesis, but it's uh, it's all from a philosophical perspective. And one of the really interesting things he points out in the book with Abraham and Isaac and Joseph and Judah, uh, interestingly enough, is um, you know, there's all these stories in there um, where these men fail spectacularly. They, they do, they make horrible choices. Um and one of the things he points out is, in the midst of all of this, God is using these experiences to instruct them. They have to learn. You know, Abraham, Abraham has to learn. They have to learn how to be husbands and fathers. They have to learn what those things actually mean, because the surrounding cultures they come from do not understand what those mean. They have to learn what it means to be a husband and a father as God intended. They have to learn what it means to be the person who transmits the covenant to the next generation, right? They, they, and, and so they have these life experiences that shape them in a way. And I've just been struck by this thought over the last few weeks that, um, that, that, that is how God teaches us so often, right? That our, our experiences in life, they, they just, we, we learn from them. God uses them to show us things. And it does seem that for many of us, entire sanctification is not going to happen in a moment because God needs us to learn certain lessons along the way in order for us to do the things with our lives that God wants us to do, right? Whatever purpose God's had. I don't believe God has a plan for all of our lives. I think he has a purpose. I think he leaves it up to us as to how we fulfill that purpose. Uh, 
But that means that we do have to learn how to be the sort of person who can fulfill the purpose God has for us. And I think very often that means um, that for, for a lot of us, entire sanctification can't happen in a moment. It has to be a process. And for other people, it's going to happen in a moment because that's exactly how God needs to use that person. They need to testify to his incredible supernatural ability to change and transform his people. Others of us have other lessons we have to learn. And we just all have to sort of be okay with that. Um, but nonetheless, we, we strive for entire sanctification. We pray for entire sanctification. We meet with our uh, discipleship bands so that we can confess our sins to each other and hold each other accountable so that we can be sanctified. And to be clear, some of the people in, in those early Methodist stories who experienced entire sanctification, um, it, it wasn't permanent. <laughs> it was just, they had this moment where they were entirely sanctified, completely free of sin, completely free of the desire to sin, perfectly able to resist temptation, and eventually it goes away. We don't know what God's up to with that. But we do know, we do know that this is a core Methodist doctrine, that we can be entirely sanctified, we can be made completely free of sin in this life. I should say completely free of intentional sin. Uh, we'll never be free of unintentional sin in this life. Um, but we can be completely free of intentional sin. And intentional sin meaning um, sin that we know is sin, right? Whether we... Whether we uh, premeditated or not, right? That's not the point. Um, I think sometimes you say intentional sin and people think, oh yeah, you plan, like sins that you plan. Not, not really. Intentional sin can be impulsive. It can be happening in the moment. You know, you can snap in anger at your spouse or your child. That's sin. You didn't plan it. You didn't intend to do it. But it's sin and you know it's sin. Uh, it's not accidental. It springs from a condition of your heart. Uh, and what entire sanctification does is it changes the condition of your heart so that those sins aren't a problem anymore. I'm going to move on now, but I, I really want to encourage you pick up a copy of Kevin Watson's book, Perfect Love. Go read Wesley's sermon, A Plain Account of Christian Perfection, which you can probably find online for free. Uh, but read them. Read them and, and then think about how they, uh, what, what, what they say and how it affects you and, and, and what you need to do in your own life to pursue entire sanctification. Now, we're going to switch gears. We're going to talk about Lent. I think that um, many people don't quite understand Lent and Ash Wednesday, why we do this, um, what the point of it is. Let's do some history first. The season of Lent, it's 40 days. Now, um, the earliest official record that we have uh, of a of the institution of Lent as a as a church wide practice that was to be done by everyone, 
is from the First Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. They decreed a 40-day fast leading up to Easter. Now, the purpose of this and the reason why it's 40 days, it's twofold. It's sort of, it calls to mind uh, Jesus' 40 days of temptation in the wilderness. It calls to mind, when he was fasting, of course, right? It calls to mind Elijah's 40-day fast in the wilderness, and it calls to mind the 40 years that the Israelites spent in the wilderness as well. Now, why, why fast in the lead-up to Easter? Well, several reasons. Um, and I'm going to apologize now that if you were at my Ash Wednesday service, you, you probably heard some of this in that sermon, if you were paying attention. Um, but there's several reasons. The first is that before we get to Easter, we have Good Friday. We have the crucifixion. And we do want to remember how God himself has suffered for our sins. And so fasting for 40 days is one way of participating in Christ's suffering, albeit on a very small scale. We also fast because fasting turns us to God in ways that other practices just don't, right? Um, fasting is to deny yourself a, a worldly pleasure. And, and we do this for 40 days leading up to Lent because when we have denied ourselves this worldly, earthly pleasure, before we celebrate the resurrection, what we're really doing is we're reminding ourselves nothing in this world is as good, as satisfying as Jesus. Nothing in this world can provide hope like the resurrection can provide hope. <clears throat> Which means that whatever you fast from during Lent, uh, it should be significant. Now, let's, before we go into that, let's talk about the history here. For a minute. So again, the first official record of a church-wide decree about 40 days of fasting is 325 AD, Council of Nicaea. But I, I personally find it pretty unlikely that Christians were not already doing that. It was What was probably happening is maybe not every Christian community was doing it, Right? Maybe there was some disorganization to how they did it or, or the length of the fast or whatever or what the fast was supposed to be. Um, but it seems unlikely in the extreme that, uh, that no Christians were fasting in the lead-up to Easter before 325 AD. It seems much more likely that what happened is the Council of Nicaea took a very common Christian practice at the time and sort of codified it into church law. So I would, I would guess that the practice of Lent goes back much further than 325 AD. I wouldn't be surprised if it started uh, within the first few decades after the death of Christ. Um, there's not any mention of it in the New Testament, of course, but that's because the New Testament is, is largely unconcerned with the practice of, with, with, with like the actual life of the church. It's much more concerned with individual discipleship and, and specific issues churches are dealing with, you know. There's no description in the in the New Testament of how to worship, how to serve communion, how to baptize, how to ordain, none of that. Um, but we know that the early church was already starting to formulate those things. <coughs> now, the earliest uh, Christians who fasted were doing what's called a black fast. 
which means that from sunrise to sunset, as long as there is light outside, you don't have any food, you don't have any water. So this is kind of like what Muslims do for Ramadan still. That was, that, that was the kind of fast they did. It's unclear when that changed, by the way. Um, in, so, so that's how it starts. Now in 600 AD, Pope Gregory moved the beginning of Lent to a Wednesday because he wanted the fast to last for exactly 40 days but felt it was inappropriate to include Sundays in those 40 days. Sundays were feast days because, technically speaking, every Sunday we celebrate the resurrection. That's why we worship on Sundays, by the way. It's the whole reason we worship on Sundays and on Sunday mornings. Remember, for Jewish people, the Sabbath was sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. And you worshipped at the beginning of the Sabbath on Friday evening. For Muslims, they worship at Saturday evening, usually. We worship on Sunday mornings because Jesus was raised from the dead on a Sunday morning. So the tradition of the church right from the very beginning has been to gather on Sunday mornings and celebrate the resurrection every week. The distinctive of Easter is that we are on Easter Sunday celebrating the exact anniversary of his resurrection. But we remind ourselves of his resurrection every Sunday. And so Sundays were feast days. He felt it was inappropriate for the church to fast on a feast day. So he moved the beginning of the fast to a Wednesday so that you could have 40, exactly 40 days of fasting, not including Sundays. <clears throat> Which means Ash Wednesday itself dates to about 600 A.D., um, as best we can tell, at least. And uh, so the early, the, the, the practice of the medieval Catholic Church was originally uh, no meat at all during Lent. And, and actually, not just that, but for, for most of its history, it was no meat, no sugar, no dairy, no alcohol, and no sex. Which is why medieval birth, medieval birth records in Europe for like the nine months after the season of Lent are almost non-existent. Because they, they weren't making babies. Uh, so that was the practice for a long time, right? No meat, no sugar, no dairy, no alcohol, no sex. Um, now they had funny ways of getting around that, right? Fish was not considered to be meat for some reason. So they could eat fish all they want. Uh, and, and then they started to sort of define anything that lived in the water uh, as fish. So you could eat beaver if you wanted to. I think, they, I think actually they, they said only beaver tails. Because beaver tail meat apparently resembles fish in some ways. So you could eat beaver tail. You could eat whale, which was very common actually in Europe at, at that time. You would eat whale meat because it wasn't real meat. Um, just yeah, odd ways of getting around the, the rules for the fast. But that was the rule, right? So no meat, no alcohol, no dairy, no sugar, no sex for the whole period of Lent. In fact, there were entire monastic communities where... Um, they would, they would not consume anything but beer, which I know you think would violate the rule for no alcohol, but apparently they didn't consider, consider that to be a problem because um, they ate no food. They just drank beer. My kind of party. Um, nothing but beer for 40 days. <laughs> and so um, that, that really didn't change officially until 1966. And that's when the new rules came out, which is that you only have to fast for meat on Fridays, which is what they do now, and that you should 
think of something else to give up, sacrifice during the season of Lent. Um, and that's the Catholic Church. Now, the Eastern Orthodox Church, they still effectively adopt a vegan diet during Lent, right? No animal products whatsoever. I, I think they allow alcohol and sugar. Um, I don't think they ban sex either. But they, they're still going vegan for the whole 40 days. We in Methodist Church, we don't really have any rules. But I gave you all the history because I want you to understand that the Lenten fast is supposed to be actually something that is difficult. <clears throat> it's not supposed to be easy. It's not supposed to be something you want to give up. It's supposed to be something that is challenging. Something that, that takes away a worldly pleasure you don't want to give up. Because the whole point... The whole point is to remind yourself that these things which bring you fleeting pleasure in this life, they, they are nothing in comparison to the joy of the life that is to come. That's the whole point. So if you, I know you, most of you are going to be listening to this on the Thursday following Ash Wednesday, but I want to encourage you, if you have not already picked something to fast from during Lent, I want to encourage you. Pick something hard. Pick something you don't want to give up. It doesn't need to be something that is causing you to sin. It doesn't need to be something that's leading you astray. It needs to be something you like, that you enjoy, that brings you happiness and peace. Some people still give up alcohol because they enjoy a beer or a glass of wine at the end of the night, not because they drink to excess. Right? Some people will give up social media. Some people will give up something else. But it's got to be something that you actually enjoy. That's the whole point. It's a sacrifice that points you to the true joy we have in Christ. We'll be back next week with another sort of Lenten-themed podcast. And until then, God bless.